This is exactly right. And especially with special needs, even if kids love their sibling and love their special and feel like, you know, they still have all these feelings and they need to be told it's okay. It's okay to feel jealous or overlooked or like it's, whatever you're feeling is okay because that's, that's normal. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful, about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Well Sibling Syndrome with our guest, Laura Zygman. Laura is the author of five novels, including Separation Anxiety, which we had the pleasure of talking about about two and a half years ago on the show. Separation Anxiety was optioned by Julian Nicholson and the production company Whip for a limited television series. She's also the author of Animal Husbandry, which was made into the movie Someone Like You, starring Hugh Jackman and Ashley Judd. Her other books include Dating Big Bird, Her, and Piece of Work. She's ghostwritten and collaborated on several works of nonfiction, including Eddie Izzard's New York Times bestseller, Believe Me. She's been a contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Huffington Post, produced a popular online series of animated videos called Annoying Conversations, and was the recipient of a Yado residency. Her sixth novel, which we will be talking about today, Small World, will be published in January, very soon. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's Welcome nice back, to, back to the show, I should it's say. Nice to be back. Thank you. So we first did this um, as we were just discussing at the be- in March of 2020. Who knew? Who knew where we were all going? Yes. And here we are, a little over two and a half years later, and we're all we're, we're all still doing it. Yep. Yes. <laughs> so, just like your previous novels and your previous writings, which I am. F- very familiar with this latest work small world is so real so authentic and um it just pulled it just pulled me in just pulled me into real life and a a part of life that i don't think many of us think about unless we've experienced it or had someone close to us experience um being in a family like those in the book and those that you grew up in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always, thank you for that introduction. And I always um, start my novels in a place of something that is, has happened to me. I mean, animal husbandry was about a woman who gets dumped. And although <laughs> I like to pretend it was holy fiction, it of course wasn't, I was dumped. And, and every book since has covered or started in a place that was a phase for not just me of something I was going through, but things that everyone I knew was going through, whether it was middle age or um, that midlife point with separation anxiety, where, you know, there's a lot of loss by the time you're in your fifties and mm-hmm. you're dealing with a lot of stuff like that and um, marriage and everything, um, including that. So for this, um, I never thought I would write about, my family, my childhood, because <laughs> we'll come back around to the well child syndrome. But right. I started this book really during the pandemic. And I thought it would be kind of a dark comedy about people who had people moving in upstairs, who suddenly opened a yoga studio above their heads, which is what mm-hmm. really happened to me and my husband and my son. <laughs> and it was a lot of aggravation and annoyance and sort of dark comedy. And I thought, oh, I'll do that. And then I thought, I just wrote about a couple. I don't want to write about a couple again about mm-hmm. marriage. I thought, well, what if it was two sisters? And then suddenly I thought, what if my sister, who moved away from the East Coast to LA 30, oh, 
almost 40 years ago. What if she moved back? And what if we were both divorced? And what, what, what if, what if, what if? And anyway, Mm -hmm. to make a long story short, it turned into two sisters moving in together as adults, which of course, lots of dark comedy there, right? I mean, if you have a sibling, whether you get along or don't get along or whatever, you know, there's just so much there, so much material. And what I didn't expect was to really go back and tell the story, a fictionalized version of our childhood, because Mm -hmm. I felt Mm -hmm. a sense of resentment for most of my life that I had lived in the shadow of this thing that had happened. And Mm -hmm. I just was like, I don't want to talk about it. Like I don't, I wrote one piece about it for modern love a couple of years ago. And, um, and I was like, okay, (laughs) done. Mm -hmm. Um, -hmm. and exploring it in this book was really uh, amazing for me on many levels. And, and I think, um, I'm so glad I did it. I was wondering and thinking as I was reading it, um, it had, there seemed like there would be healing involved and there would be a, a therapeutic aspect of, of bringing these two words and bringing these dynamics out and having these conversations with your fictional sister. Yes. Um, was it such? Yes. It's, it's yeah. a great question. My real sister and I, my sister Linda who lives on the West coast, you know, we grew up in the, in the sixties and we had a third sister who neither of us really knew. She was born first. This is the true story, not the, mm-hmm. fiction, not the novel. Yes. Um, she was born first in 1958, and she was born with a very rare bone disease. And she was institutionalized um, at a very well-known institution right outside Boston, which is now closed. And she went there when she was probably around two and died when she was seven. So the, tr- the tragedy of the loss of her was really for my parents. We didn't, it wasn't a sibling that lived with us, um, that mm-hmm. we played with, who, you know, who we had a relationship with. It was my parents' tragedy and loss. And mm-hmm. that completely shaped and colored our whole childhood, our family. And as I was writing this book, I realized, oh, it's even affected duh, our yeah, adult relationship yeah. and how we, sure. we relate to each other. In the novel, it's, it's different. Um, I was really fascinated with the idea. First of all, I thought if I wrote about that particular configuration, it'd be very dull. Nothing really happens. You know, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of action. So I thought, well, what if um, the sister in, in the book, she's named Eleanor. What if, what if? Eleanor, who who in the novel has um, a pretty significant case of cerebral palsy with a seizure disorder. What if she lived at home? And what if the mother um, was just obsessed with inclusion and included Eleanor, the disabled sister, in every aspect to the point of making it hard for the well children to really Mm -hmm. feel a part of things? And that is the tension in the backstory, the childhood story. And it kind of, the story goes back and forth, you know, in time from the present with the annoying neighbors and and their childhood. So it was a very different configuration, but I've known a lot of people for whom that is the way they live. They have Mm -hmm. special needs or physical, physically disabled child. um, And they make, and they make every effort to include them. And I'm so amazed by that and Mm -hmm. think it's incredible. And yet, yet, for every decision, Right. There's a cost. There is a cost to every decision. In your um in the opening of the book, the powerful, powerful quote um from The Blessing of Memory and Meditations Before Kaddish. No one is really alone. Those who live no more echo still within our thoughts and words, and what they did is part of what we have become. Yeah. And I get the chills when I read it, after having read your book. And it's because it's it's also haunting. You know, I, I, that's a word I w- would use to describe the experience of the characters throughout life in what the sisters knew and what they didn't know, but they could feel. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's always there. Yes, that's a great point. And I think your use of the word haunting is exactly true. You know, my parents were really good people. They did their best. This was a different time and place. This was pre-Oprah, pre-Dr. Phil, pre-Dr. Dan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, people didn't have the advantage of, you know, the kind of self-help book market or the television shows and just the the accessibility of the notions of grief and loss and trauma that we do now. And it's, and it's still hard for us now. But back then, mm-hmm. there just wasn't – no one was in therapy unless – that was a real um, – pejorative thing. If you were in therapy, you had mental illness. It wasn't mm-hmm. just that you, it was for a positive thing for mental health. It was like, something's really wrong with you. You're seeing right. a psychiatrist. Right. Um, 
And so my parents were really good people and they did their best. And I think they thought they were keeping us you know, away from this burden. But my father, for instance, did nothing but talk about my sister until his dying day. He was obsessed with mm. Cheryl. And so she was always very much a part of, of his world. I mean, I would, you know, when I wrote about the piece, he, he always had trouble answering the question. If someone mm-hmm. asked him, right. how many children did he have? He would always stop and say, he would hesitate because in his mind, he had three. Right. Now, should he stay right. three? Sometimes he said three and explained. And right. then we got into the whole uncomfortable moment of him telling complete strangers everywhere we went about mm-hmm. this dead child, which I had mm-hmm. to keep telling him, like, you can't do that. But but it followed him and, and thus it followed me no matter where I went. If it was a book, I mean, if it was a bookstore event that I was doing, I would see him in a corner and I would know exactly what he was doing. He was talking about Cheryl. And so yeah. that also instilled in me kind of, I was, it made me angry because I'm like, I'm here, you know, and right. that, and then right. we get into the whole well child thing. When did you learn about that? There is such a thing called well child syndrome. <laughs> really recently. In fact, <laughs> I was talking with a friend who, um, has, uh, kids. One, one is, um, special needs and one isn't. And we got to talking and, the two of us were Googling or whatever. And this was something neither of us had heard the term for, but the minute, you know, I saw it, I recognized it instantly. I was like, that's me. That's me. That's my sister. Um, we, we grew up and, and, and I think that's her well daughter, if you want to use the term, Mm -hmm. um, it feels strange that there's now kind of language for it, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's really helpful because everything it describes is, is really, really exactly what, um, I went through as a kid and my sister and um, most people who grew up with either a death, a death of a child or a chronic illness or special needs. And that is that you feel, even if you love your sibling, even if you think your parents are doing their best, even, 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 you still mm-hmm. feel left out. You feel overlooked. You feel ignored. And you also feel a sense of wanting to protect your parents from your own needs. You know, they mm-hmm. have enough to deal with. Mm-hmm. I don't want to burden them with asking for something. I don't want to need anything because they're so sad. And right. so you grow up with this sense of, um, you know, you internalize a lot. You have trouble asking for stuff. Then you get into relationships like marriage. And then you have trouble right. actually right. Even you're resentful because no one's giving, you know, because you can't ask for anything because you, you don't want to burden anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. it's, it's stuff like that, which is really, really common. There's another term for it called, um, glass children. Glass children, is, right? I, yeah. Which was so interesting because at first I thought it meant, sh- you know, that you're very fragile. You're or, fragile, yeah, and you can right. shatter. And no, it's they—they they just see right through you. Right. And that is perfect. Perfect description. Yes, and when we think of all the siblings who are in in the hospitals all the time visiting their um, their siblings, and and some of which who are like a twin or a triplet, you know, I mean yes. that added complexity. And how everyone knows everything about the ill child, and at yes. times you're just sitting there, um, you know, not by design ignored, right? The people in there are there to do their job, and it's just a big part of your life is with this whole family situation. And as I was reading your book and reading about Louise, uh, everyone, fictional mom Louise, um, and what a strong, strong, powerful woman, and I was trying to imagine myself in the role of how do you do it all? How do you, how do you, you know, clearly so much guilt about having a child who's suffering and wanting to give that child a quote, normal life. And then also be there for your other children in a way that's equal or fair, or I don't even know what the words are. It seems like a very, difficult task. It is. It's super hard. And, you know, I know of a family here in Cambridge and we've been friends for a long time and they actually have a daughter named Eleanor who I kind of named Mm -hmm. this Eleanor after. And they're just a remarkable family and they're very highly evolved emotionally as people, you know, they understand the cost of the inclusion for their Mm -hmm. other two kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a great thing. 
On the other hand, you know, in the early 60s, and it, and it could be now, I mean, some people are highly evolved emotionally and some people aren't. My parents were very primitive in those ways. They weren't mm -hmm. really in touch with themselves. And so they didn't really understand um, that there was this thing. They And mm -hmm. if we had told them about it or tried to explain it, if my sister Linda and I even had words for it, which we really didn't, mm -hmm. um, I don't think they would have been able to em have empathy. They just didn't, un they weren't they weren't those types of people, you know? Right. Um, and so right. a lot of it is really luck of the draw in, in who you, in who your parents are in terms of basic kind of understanding mm -hmm. things. Um, mm -hmm. And so, but yeah, the, that is just this extra layer of, of difficulty mm -hmm. for them. Um, this powerful quote from uh, Joyce, the main character, I want, I want to read to everyone. Um, it's, it's, it's just heavy. I mean, so I want you to know in reading the book, um, even though I've been on the side of as mental health care provider and psychologist in these situations over the years, then your novel really made it real at a visceral level. Um, the quote is, though she won't ever talk about it, not even when you're grown, you will always know that she never forgives herself. You will also know in some fundamental way that you are unable to articulate, but that feels as natural and as constant as breathing, that whatever you and Lydia do or say or accomplish or become in life will never feel like it matters quite as much. Yeah. That is... <laughs> It's really, it strikes me as very sad and very true yeah. in, in many of these situations. As, as you're pointing out, not all, yeah. but, but an unintended consequence probably yes. in a good number of them. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, that's really true. That's how I've, I always, I mean, my parents are gone now, but um, that's how I always felt. And when I had... Um, the success of my first book, which was one of those things that's like, you know, one of those things that happens and you're so lucky it happens and it often doesn't happen that way, but it was very splashy and it was a movie and all that kind of stuff. And I remember um, thinking the first minute I knew that I was going to actually sell my book because whoever thinks they're ever going to sell their book and that all this stuff was happening and happened all at once and sort of very fast. The, my first thought was, Oh, I get to give this thing to my parents. Like I get to like make mm -hmm. them happy because that, I mean, I was in my thirties, you know, right. Right. But, um, it is. And I think, you know, to be fair to them, they were so proud, but yet it always came down to that. You know, it always mm -hmm. felt whether it did or not, it always felt like it did for me, like just nothing would ever, especially when I was growing up, mm -hmm. nothing ever just felt like it mattered as much, you know, as that, as that thing. Yeah. I mean, all, all of your writings, as you've talked about, you know, they come from some personal experience and, and then you build a story around that. And, you know, you're talking about this a little while back in your thirties. Uh, and here you are a little 60. older, a little, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's good for you. Yeah, I know. Um, is it still a, a a growth and learning process, right? Like as you're writing this book and like, how has, how did birthing this book change you? That's a great question too, because, you know, I especially was very nervous about how it would affect the fragile piece between my sister and me. Mm -hmm. We had had a blip during the time when our parents were ill and I was the chief caretaker cause I'm on the East coast mm -hmm. and we had blown apart after my mother's death and stayed apart throughout my father's illness and his death. And it was very hard. It's just the two of us. And, um, my son is very close to his cousins and to my sister and her husband. And I'm very close to my, okay, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. it was a very high priority for me to kind of just keep that relationship. And we had been able to kind of heal it in whatever way. And I was so grateful for that. And then I was like, I want to write this book. And I remember I, I just emailed her and I said, look, um, I, I want, I want to write this book. It's going to be about two sisters. I'm not going to go there, meaning, you know, to what just happened. 
And before I could eat, we were texting. And even before I could really go into a whole explanation, I just said, you know, it's going to be two sisters moving in together, blah, blah, blah. And it will probably have something to do with the childhood stuff. She said, I totally trust you right mm. here. And I put that in the acknowledgments because it did, was a yeah. gift to me. Um, and then, of course, I wrote it and sent it to her. And it took 10 days for me to hear back. And it was hard for her to read it. And she um, finally called and she said, it's great. I love it. It was hard for me to read. And it's great. And let's talk about it. And we had we were on the phone mm. for a couple hours. And it was hard. For, of course, it would be hard because there's some little bits of things that are true as us as adults, you know, how we push each other's buttons. But what was great was that we really were able to talk about our childhood in a way, you know, she has very different, she almost has no memories of our, I mean, neither of us have memories of our sister really that right. aren't from the super eight movies. My, my father took mm -hmm. because we were too young, but mostly of our childhood, we had very different experiences of, of our childhood, even though there was just the two of us and we were only two years apart. Mm -hmm. um, she, she's blocked so much out. And so it was really interesting. And it's, I think it's definitely made us closer. Um, and I always felt very lucky because she could have been really difficult about that process. Yeah. And yeah. I want you to don't, you know, and she really let me, you know, know that I was free to just tell the truth in whatever way I wanted to, which was amazing. Yeah. And that, that, that what speaks to me with what you're saying is how you in the, in the book as well, embody the complexity of sisterhood. <laughs> right, well, there's like so I, uh, much humor yeah. in it, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I knew that if my sister moved in, and in the story, of course, they're both because it's easier. They're both divorced, <laughs> and neither of them has kids, so you don't have to write the, all those people in, right, but, um, right? You know, if if they did, and neither of them wanted kids in the story because they had such a complicated childhood, they're just right. they're kind of like right. not quite selfish, but they're just like they're just on their own, and um, and then they have these, you know, the sister from the West Coast, Lydia, moves in. To Joyce's apartment, and then these annoying people with the yoga come, <laughs> and I knew exactly like if that were me and my sister, my I would be complaining nonstop. I would just yeah. be like obsessed and aggravated, and just just inconsolably aggravated. Mm -hmm. And my sister would at first be really, oh sure, yeah, very annoying, and then very quickly she would differentiate and be like, yeah. oh no. You're so see, and all the childhood stuff. You're so judgmental. I'm very West Coast. I'm right, very right. positive. I'm right. sunshine and light. You are dark <laughs> and blue. You know, and all of that would just be the engine that would drive, mm -hmm. which I, which is so much fun because so much of that is true. It's exactly how it would play out. But of course, when you write fiction, you get to really amplify right. it and make it even worse. So and, I've been I like been wanting, I waiting to ask you this question. How much of you is in Joyce and how yeah. much of Linda is in Lydia? It's funny. My sister Linda is shyer than I am, but she's so nice. Everybody loves her. Everybody's like, God, your sister's like, they're basically saying like, oh, she's the really nice one. Yeah. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just full of like rage and ambient. I'm always complaining and, you know, but um, she, you know, she had a very different childhood experience. She was very shy. She um, didn't have as many friends. She has a lot of friends now, but she just was, um, she had just a different childhood. She had a different mm -hmm. mood and vibe. And yeah. so, she, but she is not in any way as verbally um, off-putting. Yeah, awkward. And, yeah, 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 yeah. As, like Lydia is just a creation of yeah. my own. Uh, she's yeah. a little tiny bit of my sister and like, it was nothing like. Yeah. That's why I was able to say, see, it's nothing like you. And, um, and Joyce is much more, was much closer to me yeah. for sure. Um, I am very obsessive. I get very obsessive about things like I am obsessed with, you know, the community listserv, which where we live is probably the same right. as you next door. Yeah, you're right. And so I, I did get really obsessed with that stuff and I, I get obsessed right. with all sorts of stuff like that. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone, uh, small world, uh, the title is the next door in, in the book. And, um, it that has a life of its own as yeah. as 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 well. You have a lot of fun with that. Yeah, I have this friend who I grew up with. It's my one of my best friend's brothers, and he's like a big American studies professor at um, University of Maryland. And he occasionally posts on Facebook, and he would just take a you know a post from their local Baltimore listserv, and he would just take the actual post. He wouldn't change any words, and he would just slice it into poetry. Yeah, and he post it, and I was like. 
And I told him, I said, are you going to do anything with this? He's like, no, I have a job. Yeah. <laughs> he's too busy. I said, well, I'm going to steal that. And I, he's credited in the book because yeah. it's his idea. But I, I trolled when I was writing, you know, as a, when you write, I'm sure you feel the same, but when you write, always looking for ways to not write. To yeah. procrastinate <laughs> right. So research yeah. is very big for me. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to troll next door for hours and hours. And I would find these great posts slice them into poetry. And then of course I had to rewrite them and start from scratch because I can't use the actual ones, but um, they were just, they were so much fun. Some very, very typical complaining, you know, Halloween decorations are up through Christmas, stop it, you know, all sorts of complaints. And then really moving, weirdly moving ones about mm-hmm. people being lonely and looking for friends and I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. They were there. Some uh, were funny. Some yeah. were, um, are random yes. and some are sad, right? Yeah. It's like, it's like the human experience yeah, expressed through, through, uh, yeah. Yeah. Poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Small world poetry. I also appreciated the caricatures, um, of the your upstairs neighbors in the book um i felt a little uh bring in the millennial new agey vibe and and the tension and yet the coming together and appreciation for it it, was that yeah that's an age thing you're not quite my age dr dan but when you get to be my, my advanced age um you know, 20 years ago, I would have just written them as total caricatures. Um, and I think I'm at an age now where I really try to see not just the good in people, but the almost like accidental symbolism of people or what what they represent and why are they there? And it turns mm-hmm. out like sometimes the people who torture us the most, I don't ever like to say, you know, things happen for a re- bad things happen for a reason because I don't believe that. And I don't believe people get sick for any reason other than bad right. luck, you know. Yeah. Um, so I never think of it that way. But I just think like, okay, you know, these people were put above us. Like, why? And when whenever stuff happens to me like that, I think when it's comical, potentially comical, even if it's very aggravating, I think why? And I think, well, oh, I'm going to use this in a, in a book. I mean, they mm-hmm. somebody just gave me this plot point, which is what mm-hmm. it did. It gave me at least a start for this book. But, but in the bigger sense, as I get older, I think, well, what, why are they there? You know, in the story, why are they there? And it could just be such a throwaway just to have them be comedic. And that's fine right. too. But I wanted them to have, you know, play a role in teaching Joyce something about, mm-hmm. you know, what, what was happening. So yeah, I like to yeah. have it naked. Yeah, and I, it, it, Joyce and Lydia, it vacillates back and forth between trying to figure out which one is being unreasonable and yeah. which one is actually seeing things clearly because yes. it, it continues to change yeah. throughout different, very micro and macro scenarios of the book. Yeah. And isn't that the way life is, sort of? Like, yeah. on one hand, like if you have a friend and you're trying to side with them, then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. But wait a minute. No, you're not crazy. Like it, right. it don't, often does. You sometimes don't know who's right or who's wrong. And do we trust um, Sonia, the yoga person? Not entirely, you know, right. Is she manipulating them? Sort of. Yes, she is. So, so and there is that triangulation between the three, yeah. which has a little bit of an echo for the three sisters. Yes. And the third sister yes. is now gone. But so it's, was really fun as much as writing can be fun um, yeah. to play with that and to sort of just let it go. Yes. Like half the book, I had no idea what was next. I just was like, okay, yeah. what, what, what would happen? You know? Right. Yeah. Right. And then there's Stan. <laughs> <laughs> you guys will have to read about Stan. We'll just leave it at that for right now. Um, okay. Camp Fantastic. Yeah. There was a lot. Um, I mean, not only in the book, but for also our talking about the community and well child syndrome and how that special place was special at so many levels. So I was wondering if, where did that come from? Yeah. So again, in my attempt not to write, but to research, uh, one of the first things I found when I started the book was um, 
the documentary called Crip Camp, which was the Obama's first documentary project um, through Netflix. And it came out, I think, in the winter of 2021 or late 2020. And it was a documentary about this special needs camp in, I think it was in the Catskills. I think there were Mm -hmm. several in the late 60s, early 70s. This one was the most, I forget, I think it was, I forget what it was called, but it was in the Catskills. And it was like a regular boys and girls camp that would transform for a period of time in the summers. Um, Or this one in particular may have gone fully for special needs. There were a few different kinds. But this one was very well known because um, it it kind of birthed these um, people who later became so empowered by the experience of going to this camp for two weeks that they became leaders of the disability movement in the 70s. And one, Judy um, Herman, I think was a, um, an Obama appointee for, um, so they, they were all, they all played big roles and two people I think were involved in the documentary itself. So the camp was very rustic. It had, it employed college students, not professional disability people to take people, you know, they were grabbing people out of the buses. There's all this footage, you know, kind of carrying them. People, kids were in wheelchairs, kids had all these, you know, different issues, didn't matter. You know, they just were so free for these few weeks every summer. And it gave them this real sense of agency throughout Mm -hmm. the rest of their lives. They became Mm -hmm. therapists and filmmakers and, you know, political activists, all because of this camp really Mm -hmm. empowered them. And and it really also uh, provided a lot of background for the disability movement in the 70s Mm -hmm. um, national movement so i was so inspired by that film and i thought well what you know i know there was one camp like that i think in western mass um but you know in fiction you can do anything so i just kind of based it on that and what if you Mm -hmm. know eleanor went to that camp and what if Mm -hmm. you know louise who can't let it go goes also and brings the girls and again you know the two sisters lydia and joyce are kind of like it's, it's a pivotal part of the book because it really finally allows them to be part of Eleanor's um, world, whereas they're right. usually left out. Like she's, you know, Louise does everything to try to include mm-hmm. Eleanor into the, the world, but does right. little to in, in, invite Joyce and Lydia into Eleanor's world, you know, so that this is one of the moments when it kind of bridges that. Well, and I think that's, to me, that was a profound message to the reader and to anyone listening who um, is, is is in a situation like this, as we talked about, like the complexity of who do you focus on and how and what um, Lydia and Joyce as children being able to be fully a part of Eleanor's experience um, was among the happiest childhood moments yeah. <laughs> for them, right? In their entire childhood, yeah. just being able to wheel her, to be in the pool, to be a part of the community. Right. And it seems so obvious, but then when you're Louise and you're hyper-focused on the needs of your special needs child yeah. with, I'm guessing, the assumption that your other kids who are, quote, healthy and, quote, normal are, quote, fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, because this is the really the first time that they are seen that they are seen as siblings. Um, And that is something that really, I think as we, as we bring this discussion, like it together is really like, that is the point, you know, people often, um, I mean, I've worked with, I did, I've done ghostwriting and and collaborative work and I, I did write, I was hired by some people from Newtown, from Sandy Hook. And I remember, you know, spending time with them and, working with them on something. And one of the the most incredible parts for me was meeting siblings. Mm -hmm. And that is Mm -hmm. so, and I'm not saying they overlook it. I'm saying in the world, usually we focus, especially on, you know, acute trauma, we focus on the parents. You know, if there's a death of a child, it's always the parents. We look at the parents, parents, parents. I'm always looking at the siblings because they're Mm -hmm. so overlooked. You know, you don't think of the sibling in right. all of these shootings or all of these losses, you know, you always think of the parents, of course, right. Right. but there is this sort of other side of things. And especially with special needs, even if kids love their sibling and love right. their special and feel like, you know, they still 
have all these feelings and right. they need to be told it's okay. It's okay right. to feel right. jealous or overlooked right. or like, yeah, it's, whatever you're feeling is okay because right. that's, that's normal. Right. You know? Um, there have been some college shooting tragedies that have been going on in um, this past month. And um, as I was steeped in your book and I um, took a little break and checked on my little news feed and saw more pictures of um, some of the victims. And I, uh, I, there was, I went home and told my, you know, told my, I always tell my family the things I'm reading and the things I'm learning. And this tragedy of one of the victims um, was a triplet. And there's a picture Right of this person with their uh, other two siblings, you know, several of them, and I mean, obviously, there's no there are no words. And then, as I was reading your book and thinking about the ghost, the haunting, the memory um, for the parents, for the siblings, it's just they're like, there aren't words, right? And it's, I think that's so, so important about this conversation and um, this topic and what you brought in your novel is this is this happens a lot to a lot of families in many, many different forms. Yes, that's exactly true. And whether it's, you know, something as dramatic as a, as a, a death um, or it's really just a prolonged lifelong relationship with a special needs sibling. I mean, one of the things I learned really recently, as you asked before, is that there are these adult uh, adult groups for siblings. The Sibling Leadership Network is a nationwide network to connect adult siblings with other adult siblings who are still kind of managing their special needs siblings, housing, health issues, you know, we all age, hopefully mm -hmm. if we're lucky we age. Mm -hmm. And if you grew up with a special needs sibling, your parents will eventually probably die first, usually. And then you are left, the sibling is left to manage the rest of the special needs sibling, you know, care, whether it's a physical disability or mental health issues. I mean, so many of us have siblings who are, have severe mental illness or you know, whatever the issue is. And there are these sibling groups. And I accidentally, I joined one because I was so curious. And the night came in August where the Zoom thing happened and I assumed it was going to be one of those giant things where no one would see me. And it was just three of us. Mm. And I was like, I almost just disconnected. But <laughs> yeah. I, I just thought, I was just honest. I said, listen, I wrote this novel. It's written. I'm not here to spy. I'm just, I'm just so curious that I'm so amazed that there's this place that siblings can go and if you think it's inappropriate i'm here i'll totally disconnect but they they were like no 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 stay and mm -hmm. it was unbelievable to hear mm. you know just what it involves as adults um right. this friend of mine who i was referring to earlier you know she found out early on when her kids who are now grown when they were younger and she was told she didn't even know that there was help for her well child because as her daughter was growing mm -hmm. up in the, you know, mm -hmm. with this brother who was special needs and loved, loves, loves the brother, but someone recognized, you know, she needs help. Mm. It's a lot. Yeah. And so I knew then that there was help for young kids, but I mm -hmm. didn't know that there were these adult groups. And mm. I have already passed the link. I have like three or four people I've already passed it on to because wow. people don't know that, that right. this exists. And that yeah. sense of community and connection that, you know, so, and I did a library event this summer, of one of these Zoom things with the American Library Association. And we got to the end of the Q&A and the, and the person from the American Library Association said, well, you know, your book really resonated with me. I have a special needs brother. He's six. Mm. I mean, you know, so it's all over the place. And, right. and it's right. very not, we don't talk about it that much. No. It's a really primary relationship besides we're always thinking in terms of our parents, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but our siblings and that configuration. And if you have, a situation where there is something like this going on, it it mm -hmm. affects your whole life. Well, I know your your characters are really good at compartmentalizing, and so my question to you about that is: when you got on this Zoom and you know you told them about the book and everything, were you also thinking you're also a person who is one of them, or was that compartmentalized? Oh yeah, I you know I feel like that is a huge part of my identity. 
mm-hmm. I feel like it always has been. It's always felt like um, I've always just felt different in terms of I'll tell you the moment I knew. And that was I was on a business trip. I used to work for Random House in publishing. And my colleague and I who's now a big publishing person, Julie Grau, who's brilliant. She and I were on a trip to California and we checked into our hotel. We were at Newport Beach and we were outside having a drink. And she started to tell me we're, you know, a year apart. We're both Jewish. She grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in Massachusetts. We have very sort of similar kinds of wah, 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 until the yeah. moment when she started to talk about how hilarious and happy her family was. And I'll never forget, mm. you know, under the, the ferns with my glass of right. 90s Chablis. And I was like, <laughs> wow, I had this like earth shattering epiphany. I was like, mm. I grew up in a sad family. That was the sentence. It was like ticker mm. tape that went across my mind. It was like, I grew mm-hmm. up in a sad family. I suddenly felt like, oh, other people, you know, did not talk about death the way we did. Other people did not, you know, have the kind of experience that I had. Other people were like having fun. They had jokes. They laughed. They sweet. You know, it's not to say you, you can have a death in the family or you can have a death of a child or whatever. And you can still be happy. Just my parents, we weren't, you know, we didn't have that levity. Um, but I didn't until I was, that was, I think I was 30. I didn't understand. Mm. I knew something was really different, but I didn't, right. didn't crystallize. That was the moment. Um, right. And since then, I've really always known since that moment, like, oh, not, not everyone grew up the way I did. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We only know what we know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you're talking about, and in the book as well, like the, it's fee, it's unspoken. It's a feeling. It's a word. It's an unspoken word, right? It's just, it's there, but you don't know what it really is. Well, you know what else is really interesting? I don't know if you've had time yet to watch this incredible documentary called Stutz. Oh, it keeps, okay. It's on the list. It keeps coming up right now. Everyone's saying to watch that. Disconnect yeah. right now and watch it. Like, yeah. and the, only, okay. the reason I'm just going to jump in and say it is A, Phil Stutz, who's this very well-known um, therapist in LA about whom Jonah Hill made this amazing documentary. Phil Stutz, his origin story is his brother, his brother died mm. at a young age. And so that completely defined him. And as I watched it, I was just like, this is unbelievable. Wow. And I forgot wow. the other reason I was going to say you had to watch it, but it's just, it's just remarkable. All right. That's really the third ping in about four days. So yeah. it's happening. It's yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Given your own experiences, those who you have known and even talked through when you were researching um, about well-child syndrome, um, but I, I, I'm beyond it, like the situation beyond the syndrome. Um, Knowing that, as we've talked about, it's such a hard situation, a multifaceted situation for parents, for siblings to be in, for our, for our parent listeners, like, what would you say to them? And of course, this is, we're human, just, we're all doing the best, you know, but so taken from your personal and now professional experience in this, w- what words of wisdom can you offer? You know, that's a great question because it really is so, um, it, it's so simple in a way, what I'll say, because it is so hard. And I think if you're a child growing up, you know, I always knew, even before I became a parent, and then of course, when I became a parent, I couldn't imagine, you know, what mm-hmm. my parents had gone through. But I mean, even if you know your parents are doing their best, and, and most parents are um, really doing their best to just get through it and do the, you know, do right by their special needs kid or their ill child or whatever. The biggest thing is just to try to just try to see it from the other child's perspective and just Mm -hmm. allow them to have their feelings, you know, like of course they feel right. Even if you can't give them the attention in the Mm -hmm. moment, but as long as you don't, you know, shame them right for their feelings. And if they're upset at feeling overlooked or at the unfairness, if you just, don't judge their feelings and let them have their feelings. Most yeah. of the time, if you just let someone express their feelings, if they're just, if you just let them be and say, mm-hmm. I get it, I see it, you know, all that, yeah. all that's, you know, I validate you, but it's, it's so true. All you want is for someone. If, if my parents had said, we get it, right. We get it. They, they didn't because I never said it and they didn't right. know. And it doesn't right. matter now, but I mean, 
that is the best thing you can do is just mm-hmm. let them have their feelings and know that they're, yeah, that you understand. Seen. They're not yes. glass. They're not yeah. glass. You don't see through right. them. You actually see them. And often yeah. you don't have to even do anything beyond that. As long as yeah. they're, they feel like they can say, I, I feel, I feel sometimes you don't pay, pay attention or right. whatever. Right. Right. And, and, and well, quote, well, children can have bad days, can have tantrums, can eat with their hands, can have potty accidents. Yeah. And it's like, because the, the expectation always is sort of like, well, you shouldn't be doing that. You're not right. like this sibling who can't. Right. But the well child is just as human and fallible. And um, right. and, and may start doing those things to get attention, you know, right. because they're not getting right. attention. Right. Um, right. And, and um, yeah, it's yeah. hard. It's hard, it's, hard all yeah. around. Yes, um, such an important topic. Um, okay, I've got a lot going on in my head, yet it's time for the parent footprint moment question, Laura. You're a veteran at this. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your child, and/or those you love. You know, I think I would have to say that it was when both my parents got sick. My mother got sick first, twelve years ago, with pancreatic cancer, and my father got sick two years later with brain cancer. It was a great time for me and yeah. for them. And they had never really been able to parent me in those ways. If I got sick, you know, they, even though they were Jewish parents, they, they were so traumatized, I think, from what happened with my sister that they were sort of surprisingly inept at the really basic stuff. So if I had had something, you know, I had breast cancer in between and they were not really that good with me. Mm -hmm. And so I really had to overcome my feelings of like, well, they didn't do it for me with the Mm -hmm. understanding that they couldn't. They just couldn't, for whatever reason, their trauma, their issues had made it impossible for them to really take care of me in the way that you want to be taken care of as a kid, even when you're a grown up. Yeah. And when they each got sick, I had to really overcome that on a really daily basis. You know, my mother and I had always had a very kind of strained relationship and I was there every day for her Mm -hmm. because it made me actually feel really good to do that. I was able to do for her what should be done. And what I was actually really glad to be able to do. And then I would have moments where I was very sad and angry that she couldn't do it for me. But somehow that was so healing. Mm. (laughs) Who knew a few years later I have to do the whole thing again with my father. But that really gave me a sense of, it made me feel healed in a really strange way. That I was Mm. able to do those things for them because they had really struggled. And and I was glad I, I, I could perform that. And mm-hmm. really internalize it. And I think my son saw that. Um, and he saw that, you know, you can, I hate that phrase, you can do hard things, but you can do it even when yeah. you may right. not have gotten what you needed. And and we try, yeah. um, my husband and I try with all of our family issues and mental health issues on both our sides, you know, we try to at least give our son that sense of like, you know, we hear him, we see him and yeah. the best you can yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, he's lucky, he's lucky to have that. Um, and you're also Laura, just as I listen to you, it's just, it's, it's inspiring to hear about the continual growth, right? We're never done growing and learning, um, from our past and, um, with each book and with each chapter of life and difficult chapters, there's more growth and healing that, yeah. that, that come. It's so true. Yeah. It's really true because I think, you know, what I took from this book really is that we really bring, and we, we know this, like we think we know it, but we really bring our child, our child self all the way through our adult life. You know, the way I relate to my sister um, and my, you know, my relationships is so based in childhood and most of our behaviors are really formed in childhood and we're stunted in certain ways. And, um, 
and we all go through therapy most of us do and we try to but like we're such children inside in terms of like yeah. our reactions because we're formed that way yes and so um yes and when you when you watch something like stuts and you just we are so formed by those really really early and you can you can kind of like do all these things but really in the end you are you're shaped by that and, yes. and that can, i think the lesson I took from that and what I is so inspiring from Stutz, for instance, is that sense of like, it can be a great thing that you're formed by that as painful as it is, mm-hmm. as painful as that is. And, and you wish it hadn't really, you can actually turn that into something amazing. Yeah. You know, his calling is all about that. Mm-hmm. It formed mm-hmm. him, you know? And so it's like, you can, you can turn that into something really useful in your life and for others. I, I think so. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you for sharing, uh, sharing your story, your personal story with us. And of course your new novel with us coming out soon. By the time we, uh, launch this, it'll be just around the corner. So everyone's pre-ordering. Actually, I'm doing your job. Tell everyone what they, tell everyone about your book, sure. what, what they need to do. Yeah. So small world is coming from echo books on January 10th. And um, it's available for pre-order, of course, from all, the, all of your favorite bookstores. And um, I look forward to yes. talking more about it. But I'm so yes. glad to be back on the show. I love your show. And it's so important to give parents tools for things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming back. And I will look forward to our next conversation whenever that might be. Thank you, Dr. Dan. Yeah. Take care. Uh, all right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Please do share this show with anyone and everyone you think will benefit and find support, healing, and wisdom in Laura's words and experience. Thank you for listening for your five-star reviews. They really do make a difference. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question. I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.